there. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Lollipop Chainsaw. And I'm Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not Max Payne 3. And I'm Chris mm. Hornbostel, and my game of the week is not King Arthur 2, the role-playing war game. Oh, that's such a loss for the poor King Arthur game. <laughs> Have you actually played that, Chris? Um, it was on a Paradox Steam sale, I guess, over the last weekend, so I picked it up for like five bucks. And the intro for the single-player campaign just goes on. It's like the last mm-hmm. hour of the third Lord of the Rings movie. You just keep waiting for it to end so you can actually play the game. It just keeps going and going and going, and none of it makes any sense anyway, so... Yeah, whatever. Chris, I just want you to know that sometimes you get what you pay for. <laughs> I actually like the first game well enough, but this one is yowza. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Chris, you, by the way, are uh, – thanks for joining us again. You've been with us a few times, and whenever you come yep. on, you give us a music tip. Yeah. So as someone who's brought me lots of music, I just wanted to maybe uh, recommend that you dig on a little Phantom of the Opera. Sure. No, I- Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm, I'm a big now, fan. I mean, are you really? Okay, are you being facetious? Really. I can't. I, I think you might be. In, okay. Aha! I knew it. You were being tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> so, okay, there's two kinds of people in the world, and I want to suss out where both you and McMaster are on this deal. I am convinced that, you know, like some people are dog people, some people are cat people, that, every, that the entire world you can divide into two halves. Some people are Phantom of the Opera people, and some people are Le Miserable people. Yeah? Where, where would you guys fall on this? I don't really know what to say. <laughs> okay, then, McMaster, I'm calling you for Phantom of the Opera. Chris, you have to go see Phantom of the Opera or Le Miserable. What do you pick? Uh, I guess I pick Le Miz. Sure, why not? I should have guessed. All right. Well, then, uh, fine. I'm not taking you to a musical. I hope you're happy. Uh <laughs> Uh, I, I play that partly because, I don't know if you guys know this, there's a Le Miserable movie coming out. So I was watching uh, trailers, and it's like a Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe and, uh, not Natalie Portman, uh, oh, Anne Hathaway shaves her head. Wait, so Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman. Right. Mm-hmm. Why are you going, hmm, one's Javert and the other is the uh, guy who's not Javert, whose name I forget. Uh, now, is this a, oh, go ahead. It's an angry sounding movie. Is this a movie based on the musical, or is it based on the actual book? No. Oh, good Lord, no. First of all, Le Miserable, the book, is officially uh, obsolete. Okay. I don't don't know if you know this. Yeah, Victor Hugo, we don't need that anymore. Le Miserable. It's no longer canon. Right. It's no longer canon. Le Miserable is, of course, just and only a musical. Long time ago, in ancient days, it was maybe a book. But, yeah, so this is the movie of the musical, uh, and they're singing, you know. Everybody knows in the French Revolution they sang a lot, and we know that from... Constantly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I didn't even realize. I'm just now making this connection. Phantom of the Opera, set in France. Actually, it, the, it was. I didn't even realize that. And Les Miserables, set in France. So they're both historical. They're both realistic. Uh, but I just don't get people like you, Chris, who wouldn't rather hear the Phantom of the Opera than Les Miserables. Uh 
All right, yes. now that I've driven everyone away who's here for video games with musical talk, uh, <laughs> McMaster, what should we talk about this week besides musicals, now that we've done that? Uh, I guess we could talk about news and uh, general interest topics or games. I suggest we start with news, though. Okay, starting with news, and I, I'm just really disappointed that neither of you is just like on fire about how cool Phantom of the Opera is. I, I just want to put that out there. By the way, also uh, a book at one time. Yes. Just so people know. Uh, all right, so starting with news, McMaster, why don't you start us off? What is your news of the week? My news of the week is actually uh, I wanted to kind of do something a little different. And uh, I wanted to uh, ask you how you feel about your Lollipop Chainsaw review and why exactly um, – we think the game reviews get so much negative press as compared to everything else. Okay. That's kind of newsworthy. I mean, uh, if if you look at our, our little tiny circle of quarter to three, our little corner of the Internet, uh, it's kind of newsworthy that the Lollipop Chainsaw review is, is getting more, like, comments and just, just a sort of a ruckus in the comment section than the Journey review. <laughs> I mean, I could kind of understand... The Journey review, because a lot of right. people who played Journey were really sort of touched by it and then had a, a powerful emotional response to it, and therefore they're they're going to sort of maybe lash out or be upset or, or miss or not understand when somebody else doesn't like it and is vocal about it. So I can kind of understand people being angry about the the Journey review, but for whatever reason, this Lollipop Chainsaw review, I think it's going to have more angry comments than even the Journey review. Yeah. Um, it's just really surprising to me, uh, and I, it shouldn't be at this point because I've I've been on the internet for a very long time. But it's just really surprising every time somebody takes something that personally that shouldn't really affect them. I, I really don't understand it. Uh, I, I understand, you know, hey, I like this, and you're saying it sucks, so you know that sucks, or and I'm upset because this somehow invalidates how I feel, but also, uh, you know, people don't feel that way about music and movies. It just doesn't seem like, like, for instance, there's several comments in, on yours that are like, well, it's, it works, uh, it installs, it, it has graphics, you know, and it's like, that's okay. So every movie, I guess, if it's lit and has sound, should automatically get two stars uh, just right out of the gate by that logic or a book like oh it has words in it and they weren't like smeared so <laughs> it's readable right the author it, spelled he ran a spell check on the text before publishing right right so people don't you know throw that in there if we're judging a game uh, solely on its merits uh, as a as a form of like uh, art or entertainment then you shouldn't have to bring in the technical to it you know nobody nobody cares about the frame the Mona Lisa's in uh, you know, I, but maybe that's just me. Well, I so I, I think I have four explanations, four, I think, root causes for why people are particularly angry about this, this one review, and it speaks in general to the way people react to reviews a lot of times. Uh, so I will go from order of least important to most important uh, in terms of what I think are the four things going on here. Uh, I think one of the things going on here, and I'm very glad about this, by the way, is that uh, the fellow who produced Lollipop Chainsaw, he's a fellow named Goichi Suda, and he's even coined a sort of a name for himself, like a brand name, Suda51. 
he got his start, I believe, with Killer7, which was a brilliant piece of work. And since then, he has lent his name and his sort of aesthetic to many different games, some of which he's had a more direct role on than others. For instance, Cine Mora was just a standard side-scrolling shooter that was very good, made by a Hungarian studio, and he did some writing for it. And so it gets his it gets the Suda51 imprimatur on it. It's a Suda51 game. So I think one of the things going on here is that there's a strong brand loyalty, which I can kind of understand because his stuff, uh, some of it is brilliant, but one of the things you can say about Suda51 games is they tend to be unique. They have an aesthetic yeah. unlike other games, and that does engender a strong sense of loyalty. So a lot of people, without even having played Lollipop Chainsaw, are just really eager about a new Suda51 game. It, in a way, has the same kind of brand loyalty as something like Mass Effect. So I think that's part of what's going on. The second thing that's going on is that uh, I, I managed to get, you know, I got a review copy of this uh, several days before it came out. It's a very short game. You can tear through it in an evening, and if you want to do high scores, there's a little bit of that there. But it's basically a game you will play in one or two sittings. So because of that, I managed to get the review posted uh, the moment the embargo lifted. And a lot of other sites who were still fussing around with E3 coverage or whatnot didn't do that. So something that was going on there is we were one of the few reviews uh, that was available as soon as the game came out. Uh, a third thing that's going on that you certainly touched on, McMaster, is the way that most people think of review scores. And good Lord, I've talked enough about this. I don't have to get too, too much on this. But think of review scores as a 7 to 9 uh, range. And anybody who uses the entire scale tends to, can find themselves, like I often do, as an outlier. Uh, so I strongly believe that you should use the entire range of your reviews. Not many outlets do that. Certainly the bigger outlets don't. They sit in that comfortable seven to nine range so that when somebody gives something a one out of five stars, it's going to necessarily sit at the bottom of the Metacritic ratings. And that's just a, it's a larger issue. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't know if anything can be done about that. Uh, but that's that's part of what's going on there. But the final thing that I think that's going on, and I think the most important thing, is that a lot of the folks who get very angry about this uh, are, are basically, and I don't mean this to insult anyone, but are basically kids. Sure. Uh, and there's something about growing up and sort of uh, having a sense of security about your opinions and this idea that everybody else is wrong and you're always right. Uh, I think a lot of the comment section are, it's just sort of immaturity, and I, I don't have a problem with that. That's part of growing up, and that's part of how kids maybe react to stuff, and I like to think that they'll eventually grow out of it. So I think a lot of the anger is something that I don't take personally, and it's just youthfulness. Uh, so those four things, McMaster, are, I think, part of what's going on with that lollipop chainsaw review. Sure, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, it's, just a, it's just kind of depressing every time and it's not because i i care about lollipop chainsaw i like suda 51 i like his, uh, his his aesthetic but i mean he's made some questionable games um the uh the the thing that bothers me the most is that there's this this disconnect between the fact that a game just kind of deserves a baseline score because it installed and didn't right. delete your files and that's part of that seven to nine thinking, I think, is that there's no reason yeah. as long as you as long as you make it to the shelves, you're obviously good enough to be a seven. Yeah, right. Which is not true. I played Duke Nukem. I played uh, quite a few games that are just well. Uh, now, McMaster, some games maybe deserve a six. Well, that's true. I, I think the I think the yeah 
the uh, the governor was taken off on those reviews. Uh, now, uh, hey Tom, if you pointed it, pointed out to any of these reviewers that you actually use on the quarter to three forums a ranking system based on Killer Seven. Oh, wow. That's that. right. Yeah, I forgot I about mean, that, too. <laughs> it, I mean, you've got Suda51 bona fides, man. I kind of do. I mean, I... I like old school. I am, yeah. I, Have you kids these days even played Killer7? Because it won't run on your, your fancy next-gen system. totally hipster, those kids, man. <laughs> That's right. So what Chris is talking about is... Actually, Chris, why don't you explain this? What is the, uh, what is the quarter to three reference to Killer7? Well, when you... Create an account and post on the quarter to three forums. Underneath your name on the left, there's a little title underneath. And as you post more, your title changes. And every title that's listed there is actually, is it a character from Killer7 or a chapter? Sure, right. Yeah, so there's a character named Travis who is kind of, I don't know what role you would describe Travis as fulfilling, but he's kind of uh, almost like a Greek chorus. Like he will come up and he'll just appear and comment on the action. And does he give you weapons or, but yeah, he's a guy who shows up over the course of the game and in chronological order, based on the number of posts you make, you get the, he wears these cool t-shirts that have like logos and, and just words on them, strange words. So his first appearance is, is it bad girl or it's something like that? And he eventually, as the game escalates, has a T-shirt that says like "world-ending supernova." So the more posts you make, you're marching down the progression of Travis's T-shirts from Killer Seven. Yeah, I constant well not constantly. I think maybe a half a dozen times from a new poster, I have gotten a little uh, private message or an email saying, uh, "Why why does my name have the title bad girl next to it?" <laughs> <laughs> Then what am I expected to do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or did I? Yeah, or did I write something? Did I write something that made that trigger? Uh, and how do I get that off of my name? Yeah. Uh, just, all right. Just uh-huh. yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, I was I was just going to wrap up and say so. Lollipop Chainsaw definitely not my game of the week, and some folks rightly upset about that. But I would encourage people. Uh, you know what? Rent it. Give it a shot, and uh, maybe it will work for you. Um, so, uh, McMaster, will you be playing Lollipop Chainsaw? I don't know. I I don't know. I, it, how, it's not a full-price game, is it? You know what? I am strongly of the opinion uh, that price has no part in a review, and so therefore I'm going to use that excuse to say I don't know. <laughs> I have no yeah, idea if it's a $60 uh, game or a $20 game. I, I, I don't know. I think it's an XBL or a budget-priced or lower-priced game. I don't think it's a 60 Okay, I can kind of see that being the case, considering that it is 45. short. Forty-five. Okay. That's yeah, there's no how. there's no multiplayer component. It it really is brief. And and for actually for me, the the bigger disappointment isn't that it's a suit of fifty-one game. It's that they hired a fellow named James Gunn to write it. And I really loved his last movie, which was called Super. Rain Wilson and Ellen Page were in it. Uh, James Gunn has been doing like schlocky movies for a long time, and I got this great sense in Super. That as a as a writer he he'd really uh, matured and I don't mean that again to insult anyone but he was considering 
certain themes more deeply about superheroes, and it was very uh, – it, it had this really cool sense of deconstructing the whole superhero mythology, great performances, a really cool villain by, by Kevin Bacon. Uh, and James Gunn just did a great job writing and directing that. So I was just so disappointed that they put his name – you know, they, they, they hook his name to Lollipop Chainsaw – and maybe that got my hopes up too high, but there was just no sign of the great stuff he had done in Super in Lollipop Chainsaw. So that, that was where I was more disappointed than the Suda 51 thing. You know, I, I'm actually not sure what the price, like, it looks like that was a sale price from Amazon, but I can't imagine the game being more than 40 or 50 bucks. Right, right. Uh, wow, well, nope. Retail 60. Okay, well. Wow. I'm guessing you will be able to find it relatively cheaply in a few weeks. <laughs> That's my yeah. prediction. <laughs> All right, so McMaster, that is your news of the week. Uh, let, let me go second. My news of the week, and I know Chris is actually a little can speak a little bit to this. McMaster, when you were here for E3, at one point uh, we were. <sighs> We were talking about the Wii or something, and you you mentioned that standard thing, which we've all thought, and a lot of us have heard other people think, about why isn't there a good lightsaber fighting game for the Wii? Yep. Uh, and that's something that everybody thinks, everybody says. And I, I think one response to that is it's just really hard to do sword fighting with motion controllers. It's not that nobody's thought of it. It's just that it's not. we don't really have a viable interface for that with all this motion controlling stuff. You know, those of us who played... Uh, Oh, rats. What was that Ubisoft thing uh, with a sword? Red Red Steel? Is that right? Yep. Yeah, so That's Red it. Steel sort of tried to do it. Ubisoft, a notorious early adopter for the the Wii motion stuff. They tried it with Red Steel, Red Steel 2, and you end up just sort oh, of waving, yeah. waving your arms around, and, and there's just no feedback, really. So it's something we all wonder, but I just really think that the technology isn't there. You know, this crazy Wii waggling and Sony motion move stuff and connect. Uh, you just can't duplicate a sword fight because it necessarily involves feedback from the other sword. Uh, however, and I love it when amateurs get involved like this, uh, an amateur, a fellow who's had no role in video gaming, but he's a well-known name, has uh, started a Kickstarter, and he is going to turn the world of motion feedback sword fighting on its head by making a sword fighting game. Uh, the fella is... Uh, Wait, Neil Stevenson? Did I screw up his name? Neil, is nope. that right? Yeah, yeah, Neil Stevenson. Uh, he's a science fiction writer, and his game, which he's got a Kickstarter for, is called Clang. He made a very cute, funny video of it, but basically his contention is that he has figured out what nobody else making video games has been able to figure out, and he is going to solve the problem of you know why we don't have a lightsaber game by using his own special video game magic to make Clang. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Chris, I know you've seen this, and you are similarly skeptical. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Oh, um, you're, you're in. You're in whole hog, are you? Well, I think that there's a great track record for people who have never developed a video <laughs> game for coming in and telling everybody else who's been doing it for years that they're doing it wrong and to give them money and watch them go. But Chris, so, he, wrote, he wrote Snow Crash. Yes, he did. Well, what's your deal? <laughs> Um, Neil Stevenson is a writer, doesn't do much for me either, but, you know, whatever. That's not germane to this. I, I just don't see how it works. Um, I don't, I don't think he does either. I think that's two of you. <laughs> I, you know, the, the whole, if you watch the Kickstarter pitch video that he put together, what it seems like to me is Neil Stevenson 
plus something plus dongle equals profit. It seems to be the whole thing, and they'll figure out what goes in the middle there. I, I just don't get it. So when you spell it out like that, like an algebra problem, Chris, part of me wants to like fill in the blanks. And I'm thinking that somewhere along the line, somebody had this idea and they figured, well, we need a famous name to stick on it. Let's, right. you know, and they, so they, they started emailing people with geek cred, you know, hey, will you support our project? And finally, Neil Stevenson was like, well, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. You guys can put my name on that. I'll do the funny video. Uh, but yeah, I think he's kind of a name. To, to help give, get publicity, and it's a remarkably effective tactic. Uh, I, are they going to make their uh, their goal? Do we know? Well, they got 25 days left, and they're like halfway there, so it, they might. Um, yeah, I think they're they're going to get there. Um, Neil Stevenson has a lot of cred with folks who I don't know. If you described good writing to them, they would think that it was Neil Stevenson. <laughs> wow. Very nicely put. Didn't he write, uh, oh, not Necronomicon. What's a, a Cryptonomicon. Cryptonomicon. Yeah, so yep. I actually, I own a copy of that because of a gentleman named Ken Levine. <laughs> I remember interviewing <laughs> Ken for, I think they were doing the Tribes game. And just talk, like, Ken's a great guy to talk to just about, like, books and movies, and he's well-read. And he was describing the the structure of the plot they wanted to do for the Tribes game, which I don't think turned out as well as Ken hoped. But just listening to Ken talk about the structure, he, he kept mentioning Cryptonomicon. Uh, so I ended up buying it and thinking, yeah, you know, this is a Ken Levine-approved book. I'm going to read this. And I made it like 50 pages before realizing this this is not for me. Uh, um, he's, he's a great stylist. I just, man, you get to the last 200 pages and you're like, where is this going? And unfortunately, the problem is, is usually Neil Stevenson doesn't have any idea either as far what, as my criticism. Well, that's, I think that may or may not be valid. But I think it's part of what happens when you get famous and successful. <laughs> Nobody's yeah. going to fix what you're doing wrong. Because right, they right. figure, hey, you're selling copies, so rock and roll. Keep going. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Clang, I think what, 25 days to go. It looks like uh, well on its way to meeting its goal, and we will get the Neil Stevenson version of a sword fighting game. How do you guys feel about the name, by the way? What do you think of Clang? McMaster, does that do anything for you? Uh, no. Chris, does that do anything for you? Do you like the name or not? Do you think if you, Chris, they've appointed you as their head creative advisor for this project, and they come to you and they're like, "We want to call it Clang." Um, I would say either Clang, that's okay. I would either suggest Ungard, or uh, that's kind of French though. That's French and highfalutin. Or yeah. tr- try this one on: mm-hmm. Errol Flynn jumping on a table and laughing. <laughs> I would I'd like that game. Yeah. Yeah, I I, th- I think it needs to be a little snappier. Uh, okay, so Clang. Clang works. I, I like Clang. <laughs> See, I like Clang, too, but Clang immediately makes me it, – it's bringing it, – it's calling attention to the thing that doesn't work in motion <laughs> fighting sword games. True. Do you want to call attention to the most difficult part of what you're trying to do? And that's the point of contact between the two swords. I don't know that that's wise. It's a great uh, – I think more – Video game names should be, I'm going to roll out a $5 word here, everybody take notes, more video game names should be onomatopoeias, so I like that about it, uh, but uh, it may not be wise to bring attention to your central challenge that you're never going to be able to solve. So, all right. So there we go. So, clang. Now, let's get serious with some news. Chris Hornbossel, I'm guessing I know your news story of the week. 
as and it's not even necessarily of the week. I would maybe call this a news story of the month. Uh, yeah, this one's been dragging on. So tell us briefly, yeah, what have you been following, and what is the current situation with it? Okay, well, my news story of the week, obviously, uh, is the demise, collapse, bankruptcy of 38 Studios, mm-hmm. which uh, had two studios in Baltimore and Providence, Rhode Island, and Baltimore Studio released their game back in February, which was Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. I, I think I said that right. Who yeah, I, that? I'm always wanting to, I, I'm wanting to enough. put a definite article in there, too. Like, it should be The Reckoning, and I don't think right. that's in there either. Yeah, so no definite article. You got it, though. Yeah. And the Providence Studio has been working on a fantasy-based MMO since, gosh, you would almost have to say December of 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has been dubbed Project Copernicus, and... They haven't delivered anything, and now they're bankrupt, and they're not going to deliver anything. Now, this is nothing, in, in a way, unusual. We're seeing games right, right. closing right and left. Uh, how, however, there are things in this situation that are unique. And in a nutshell, what's unique about this particular game studio closing that, that's not the case with many other studios that close? Well, I think there are a couple of things, actually, to this. The first part is obviously that 38 Studios is Kurt Schilling, who is a baseball, former baseball player, very famous, uh, three World Series titles, uh, three World Series rings, uh, kind of a hero in the sports community in New England. That kind of a hero. I mean, the guy, Kurt Schilling, that's the gold standard. Tom Brady on one level, which is football player, and then Kurt Schilling, probably a little bit below that, but almost just as high. Uh, so you have that celebrity attached to this, but one other thing that I think really makes it unique, and it was something that I picked up on in talking to people who have worked at 38 Studios before it went down, was just how much there was no sense that this was going to fall, um, and then the, the speed at which it happened, basically... These folks in Providence especially went to work on Monday, May the 14th, and in the afternoon, some folks came back from lunch and said, hey, there are media people outside, and they say we're not getting paid today. Does anybody know anything about that? That was literally the first clue that anybody in the studio working there had that something had gone wrong. And, you know, 11 days later, they're laid off, and three weeks, a week after that, they declared bankruptcy. Mm Mm-hmm. That's another aspect. And then I guess the final big thing is the involvement of the state of Rhode Island. You've got a, uh, you've got taxpayers basically who funded the development of a video game. And I am unaware of any other video game that has ever been funded like this where, you know, if you kind of split it up into equity, this loan from the state of Rhode Island basically gives the taxpayers of Rhode Island almost majority interest mm-hmm. in 38 studios. Mm-hmm. So, so of these three things, Kurt Schilling's role, the suddenness of it, and the, the state's involvement, uh, I want to talk briefly about uh, Kurt Schilling. Uh, okay. That is 
kind of unique, isn't it? Like I can think of, of um, celebrities that have lent their names to a video game or even something like uh, like Vin Diesel sort of helping right, found right. Tygon Studios. But again, not from a I'm taking my own money. I'm doing this is my own dream. It's sort of like he's lending his name to something. He's allowing a celebrity to be used. Uh, he's sort of a figurehead for it. Uh, well, and, and beyond that, uh, Kurt is legitimately a video gamer. Exactly. You know, that's, that's the other thing is you've got this guy, I think it almost goes back to high school, where you've got the coolest of the cool jocks coming over to the nerd table at uh, lunch and sitting down with us and saying, I'm with you guys, let's play some D&D. And that for our generation, or at least for this point in video games, I mean, I can imagine in 20 years, you know, kids growing up now who are going to be rich and famous and celebrities, of course, they grew up with video games. But for folks Kurt Schilling's age, that's going to be unusual. Uh, so, so, yeah, we really did get this sense of, hey, here's this cool, famous guy, and he's one of us, and he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. You know, he's, he's not just lending his celebrity and his image. He's actually founding a studio, and he's going to do what it takes to make a good game. And he talked a great game, by the way, too. Well, like, that's – oh, absolutely. The, the one thing that you have to give Kurt Schilling credit for is, unlike so many celebrities, especially those who – perform, and I guess you can call an athlete as somebody who has to perform on a big stage, mm-hmm. uh, Kurt Schilling truly understands the fan service part of the deal. Uh, when he signed a contract to go play for the Boston Red Sox, he found out which uh, message board forum was the biggest one for Boston, went and signed up and <laughs> said, hey guys, you know, great to be here. Can't wait to be a part of the tradition, and we're going to bring a World Series to Boston. And, you know, for years, he was an active participant in that forum. And then, obviously, on quarter to three, uh, when he was first forming 38 Studios, which started out as Green Man Gaming, or I'm sorry, Green Monster Gaming, sorry. Um, Green Man. Green Man is Green Man's a, a, a Steam wannabe, I think, but Green Monster Games was his, the original name of the company. Uh, he signed on to the Quarter to Three forums yeah. and answered questions there, which was great. And, and one of the things that I've been, uh, I, I guess, pleased to see is that, that a lot of folks who are rightly angry about this are trying to sort of not aim that ire at Kurt Schilling. Like the, right. there's not. There is, of course, the normal tendency to demonize him, and and that's a standard, you know, tear down the celebrity, tear down the rich kind of thing, and I understand that. But I do see a lot of folks who have every right to be angry directly at him saying, you know, he's a great guy, he did everything he could, I have no anger at him. Uh, like, I, I don't get the sense that he's an a-hole. You know, which right. is a lot, of, which is the case, and and there's still a lot of stuff to be to shake out. But I, I, you know, he seems like a genuinely good guy, and it seems like his heart was definitely in the right place. Absolutely passionate about uh, this project and this MMO project. Yeah. Now, uh, so you, you mentioned the the suddenness of, of this, Chris, right, and how right. how quickly it went down, and how so many of the employees were caught unawares. Uh, is there any evidence? And again, when something like this happens, there is a tendency to tear down celebrities, to tear down the rich, talk about how awful the suits are, to talk about how there's something evil or fraudulent going on. Is there any evidence here of any fraudulent mismanagement or anything potentially criminal? Or is this just another instance of, uh, of bad business decisions, the wrong place, the wrong time? Uh, how, how dire does it look like this is going to be? 
Well, those are great questions, and hopefully I can give you vague answers that might answer them. Um, there doesn't appear to be anything like embezzlement where somebody was blatantly skimming money off the top. Uh, that There's no evidence of that that I've seen. Uh, nobody I've talked to believes that happened, and so I think we can put that part of it to rest. Having said that, um, there are some gray areas here that may – it kind of depends on what the lawyers think. Um, it's important to note that 38 Studios is a privately held company, so normally – you know, if 38 Studios was traded on the stock exchange or something like that, the accountants there, it would be part of their job, and it would be illegal in most cases for them not to disclose the financial difficulties. Mm-hmm. Because they're a privately held company, they're not under that requirement. They don't have to disclose that they're having cash flow problems and revenue stream problems. But having said all that... As part of their deal with the state of Rhode Island, right. uh, they brought in IBM actually to do a project monitoring agreement to watch, you know, to basically keep act as a liaison between the state and 38 studios to report on, hey, we're making progress, we're making, you know, what's the progress of this, basically to watch the investment for the state. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we're going to find criminal, but we may find something. Uh, that can be that'll be a civil case. I'm not sure how that would break down. Where there may have been things said or misrepresented to the folks monitoring this project that were carried back to the state of a much rosier picture than what actually was the true state of things. Right. Uh, would could something like that? You, you mentioned a civil suit. Uh, could yeah. something like that have any sort of criminal repercussions? Because I know that the state of Rhode Island uh, has law enforcement agents right, looking right. into this. Like there is an investigation going, uh, which is understandable given the the amount of money involved. Right. Given that taxpayers are very angry, uh, is it possible that there could be some sort of criminal fallout, some sort of repercussions? Uh, Honestly, I, I think. You know, obviously they have to do their diligence and investigate and send in forensic accountants to look over the books, plumb the hard drives, everything they can find. Um, They've got to do that. They should do it just to make sure because all of us saying there's no evidence of anything blatant blatant wrongdoing doesn't make it so. But at the end of the day – I don't think they're going to find much, if anything. I think that uh, Governor Chafee in Rhode Island has to do this uh, as service to his constituents. I think uh, that the Rhode Island Attorney General is going to look to get his name in the news. You know, right. you've got some people that are going to, you know, try to do some taxpayer service on the back of this. Doesn't Chafee come out ahead? Because he sort of inherited the deal from the previous governor, and now he can sort of use this to say, hey, look at the mess and look at what I'm having to contend with. I made the difficult decisions to let this company fail. Does he? I know a lot of us gamers might want to blame him, but as far as appealing to the state of Rhode Island, doesn't he kind of look a little heroic, or am I misreading that? You know, until we actually got the bankruptcy filing, which was on June the 7th last week, you know, Chafee kind of looked like a big jerk in all this mm-hmm. because he was the guy who 
kind of made some real public statements about the insolvency of the company and mm-hmm. this, that, and the other thing. And you had Schilling in interviews saying, well, you know, that scared away venture capital, that scared away publisher deals for Reckoning 2, and that was the final nail in the coffin. Now that you we've actually had the bankruptcy filing and we see that the company was – you know, owed $35 million to creditors that were not just – that's setting aside what they owed to the state of Rhode Island. They owed $35 million to, you know, they owed some of that to Dell for all the computers that they mm-hmm. used. Uh, you know, there's all that money. And so then you have to realize that even if – or even if uh, – 38 Studios signed a publishing deal, they'd get $35 million, and that would bring them up to current – on all their accounts that they owe up till now. Mm-hmm. And now they've got at least 10 months to 16 months to try to finish this game, and they're burning through $4 million a month to do that, plus they have to market it. You know, it, once once you realize all of that, you realize that Lincoln Chafee did not kill this. This was dead. He pulled the cover, you know, he pulled the blanket over the head and pronounced it. Right, right. And in a way, it's almost like a feather in the cap of fiscal responsibility for, for Chafee right. to say, you know, I'm not throwing good money after bad. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. no point in throwing more money, taxpayer money, into this money pit yeah. because that's all it was at this point, unfortunately. So- Let's briefly then talk about this money pit. You mentioned there's never been a deal like this before with video games, but of course, plenty of states do this with Hollywood. Right. You know, they right. offer tax credits to, to film production. They're like, hey, come shoot in our state. We'll give you breaks. You, you know, we'll make it worth your while. Uh, this has not, you're saying this is unprecedented with video games, right? But how similar is it to the way that states work with Hollywood? Well, I think with Hollywood, you're dealing with a couple, you're dealing with a studio system. So as a state, you've got another entity, you know, normally that is saying, Hey, we're a production company and we've brought, you know, this film and this film and this film. We, we've brought those, we, we've created those movies. In this case, you had a deal that seems to have been struck off of Rhode Island's desperation to attract tech jobs. And basically, um, a political writer named Matt Iglesias just put up a story on Slate about this. Where he said, you know, basically this was just Red Sox fanboyism gone berserk. Mm. Right. <laughs> which, unfortunately, that's probably part of it as well. Uh, which, again, brings it back to, to Kurt Schilling, you know, the sort of celebrity here. Uh is it fair to criticize Schilling? I mean, I mean, if I was doing a game studio, if I was founding a game studio, it makes perfect sense that if a state wants to extend to me a loan, wants to be my venture capitalist, uh, sure, why not take them up on that? Uh, one of the criticisms that I've heard of Schilling is that he is a notoriously conservative, uh, f- fiscally speaking. Uh, right. he, he's definitely been an outspoken opponent of, of government bailout programs, and yet he's availed himself of a government loan like this. Uh, do you think it's fair to criticize him or call him out for hypocrisy on this situation? I think it's fair to call him out for a couple of things. And let's go back to one thing you said, uh, that for you it would be perfectly reasonable to mm-hmm. get into this agreement with the state. Uh, I think for any you know chief financial officer – at a software development studio, they would tell you, no, that's not reasonable at all. That's crazy because unlike venture capital, 
these are loans that have to be paid back. You, you know, you're not granting someone equity and skin in the game, as it were. Uh, you're not getting money from a publisher who is going to want to see this, co- you know, a game come out and is going to keep, you know, a revenue stream going. Uh, this is just a flat out carte blanche loan, but it was a carte blanche loan with all these ridiculous uh, hiring tiers ah. and salary escalators in it that basically required 38 Studios to spend money like crazy to get more money out of the state, and it just really wasn't worth it. So, you know, that part of it, it just it was a really bad deal from both sides of them to take money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other side of it, yeah, I think you have to. Yeah, you, you know, as much as you want to laud Kurt Schilling for his passion and wanting to bring the game, to his dream game to market, you do have to take into account his politics on this. Um, he puts himself out there as a figure speaking to, po- to politics, and once he's made that decision to do that, well, now he's fair game, and sure. his company is not willing. You know, he was not willing to walk the walk with his own company. Mm-hmm. Now, so, fi- finally, Chris, do you think that uh, this story is going to die down for a while? Uh, what, what's uh, what does it look like in the next couple of months in terms of uh, whether or not we'll be hearing more about this? Uh, well, I don't think it's going to die down quite yet. Um, Gama Sutra just published yeah. uh, a letter that they got from uh, 38 Studios' spouse, uh, which is really revealing. A lot of people are, you know, really sad about the plight the spouse is in. I actually got more information from the job the spouse was hired to do, which was basically to bring Project Copernicus to the finish line. And apparently he got there about Christmas of 2011 and realized that this game was nowhere near – like he was hot, the job he was hired for, the state of the game was in no condition to right. even get there. And that tells me – kind of confirms that even maybe March of 2013, which was a revised estimate for the release of this game, it's probably a little bit optimistic. Mm-hmm. So – I think that stays in it. Um, the bankruptcy hearing is going to drag and drag and drag on. It's going to be down in Delaware. Uh, there is some, you know, wondering whether 38 Studios had ever changed their incorporation to Rhode Island, and that's not the case. They're definitely a Delaware corporation. Um, it's a liquidation hearing, so the court's going to appoint a trustee. The trustee is probably going to bring in an expert on tech, and they're going to figure out what, if any, value the Amalur IP has, mm-hmm. the game code, you know, voiceovers, text, everything else, and then they're going to try to sell it and get as much money as they can. There's uh, one other thing that's going to happen, possibly. Uh, that Governor Chafee is trying to do to try to get more money back for his taxpayers, they're actually going to pursue uh, something that's called, uh, gosh, it's uh, basically going after the insurance of, it's called professional liability insurance of the six law firms who worked on the original deal to bring 38 studios into the state of Rhode Island. Uh, if they can show that those lawyers were negligent, 
and ignored the laws that should have applied to this tax deal, mm-hmm. then these, you know, these guys all carry, I guess it's basically the lawyer's equivalent of malpractice insurance. Right. They can maybe go after that, but they have to be able to prove negligence to collect on that. Do you know how? It seems like it's kind of a long shot, but we'll see. Do you know how unusual that sort of thing is in a bankruptcy like this? It's pretty unusual because, you know, this is basically. It's pretty vicious, basically. Yeah. Yeah. This this is going to be nasty. This is going to be a whole lot of he he said, she said going on in Rhode Island about the original deal that was signed by the former governor. And you can. Better believe that every politician in Rhode Island who is against this deal is going to look to make an awful lot of hay off of it over this. So basically, this is a story that is going to keep on giving, as it were. We'll still be hearing a lot more about this in the coming months. Yeah, and, you know, it's good. It sounds like more and more people from, you know, it sounds like most of the folks from Baltimore have landed on their feet. Um, It sounds like more and more people who worked in Providence are finding jobs as well. So, you know, that's that's a silver lining, but the rest of the story is going to keep on going for a while. All right. All right. So there's that. Uh, and, and, Chris, I just want to take the opportunity to thank you. You had just been very active in the forum uh, thread about this, and I just thought some of what you were writing was really important, and thanks for letting me post that on the front page because that's just been uh, – it's been great to – it's been great to see stuff like clearly laid out like you've been doing. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you for saying. Uh, it, it, it was enjoyable to use my uh, old University of Missouri journal- occasional journalism school classwork there. Ah, you took journalism classes. Aha, I could have figured you, as much. <laughs> you had to wait. You, you know, if you weren't in the J school and I wasn't in the J school, you had to wait until your senior year and kind of beg, borrow, and cheat to get into classrooms that weren't full already. But I, I did get a couple in. Uh, I at the Harvard Divinity School, I got to take an opera class. Nice. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> it, it, is, it did not serve me well, but I'm doing whatever I can to uh, bring the podcast background to Phantom of the Opera. I can play more of that later yeah. if you guys want to hear some more. <laughs> That'd be uh, perfect. <laughs> so do you guys think I uh, fatty Arbuckle esque ending for Kurt Schilling, or do you think he'll come out pretty clean on this? Um, you know, Kurt Schilling. That's the one thing that I think there's a misconception from some folks is that, you know, he's getting away scot-free here. Uh, Kurt Schilling has probably sunk about 40 to 45 to $50 million into this company, and that's gone. That is yeah. absolutely disappeared now. And during his baseball career, which lasted – 16, 17 years, he, his total salaries were about $111 million. If you figure, you know, houses, cars, putting his, you know, he's got kids that he's going to want to send to college. Uh, Kurt Schilling's bank account is not doing real well. Uh, he's probably down to not a lot of what they would call liquid assets. So, you know, don't think Kurt Schilling's walking away from this thing free. He uh, is in pretty tough shape financially. 
Well, and I would also imagine just losing a lot of face on this. You know, it used to be oh, yeah. you, you've you've written about this, Chris. That you know, obviously, part of what drove the success of the of founding Thirty Eight Studios was his personal cachet. You know, people were like, oh, Kurt Schilling, sure, I can support this guy. He knows what he's doing. There, there was there's reputation there, and you know that loss is probably every bit as devastating to him as as some of the as the money. I, I would think uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, last year. ESPN brought him in during the Major League Baseball playoffs as a mm-hmm. special commentator. Be interesting to see if they do that again this year. Um, <laughs> you know, I, he is a very engaging guy, and you hope he's not relegated to this kind of Pete Rose existence where he schlubs around to, you know, card conventions and signs memorabilia, and that's his sole source of income. You hope that doesn't happen because right. he is a really engaging guy. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Uh, but for now, let's introduce a little levity and let's talk some games. Games? Games. Video games. Things that have actually come out that we have actually played. Uh, Chris, I kind of want you to go first. I'm curious what your game of the week is this week. Okay. Well... My game of the week, unfortunately, for me anyway, we're in a little bit of a dead zone. Now, why do you um, say that? Why, why? Well, you guys have talked Diablo 3 to death, and I'm playing a lot of Diablo 3. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just started playing Dragon's Dogma, and uh-huh. I think last week, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not farther than you are in the game, and I think last week or the week before, that was your game of the week, and it got quite a lot of talk. Have you been high uh, my pawn, by the way? Have you been... Uh... Hiring my little diminutive you know, magic user to tag along with you? You know what? I need a tank. So, no. Sorry. You're probably using Harkonis's level 90 uh, dude, aren't you? <laughs> oh, he's yeah. well above that now. <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating game, though. You know what? You so, need a tank, but come on. She'll light your sword on fire. Literally. That's not a euphemism. She will light <laughs> your sword on fire so that when you, you know, whack things, they burn. Come on. Just give her a chance. Don't. Don't. <laughs> Ouch. All right, well, McMaster has spoken. All right, so you're playing a little Diablo, a little Dragon's Dogma 2. Right. I didn't, yeah. want, I didn't want to talk about those. Okay. Uh, and so I thought, wait, I've got the perfect game because I know it's been talked about on the show, but I don't think it has ever been anybody's game of the week before. Mm-hmm. And then, so I kind of flipped through a bunch of the old podcasts and discovered that McMaster made it his game of the week back in July. That's okay. We can double but, up. We don't mind, yeah? Well, and so much of the game has changed since then, oh. and I think it is one of the best games to come out. Uh, it's, I think it's easily the best role-playing game of the last uh, two or three years. And so the game, my game of the week is The Witcher 2 Enhanced Edition for the Xbox 360. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Did so I threw all of those extra new things in there. <laughs> this is definitely no. This isn't like that Witcher that, that was on my top ten list for 2011. This is something totally different. New platform. Totally. It's got a new little words after the colon. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So you're playing exactly. on the 360. Yeah. So tell us a bit about where you are. How far into it are you? And maybe dance around spoilers if you can, in case folks listening haven't tried it yet. Okay, well, I am in the middle of Chapter 3, which has brand new quests added to it for the Enhanced Edition. Mm -hmm. 
um, which do a great job of helping to kind of explain some things that went on in the background. Uh, and the 360 version really is, but I mean, to start off with, Tom and Jason, I don't know, if Jason, are you old enough to remember about buying actual video game boxes in stores? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I have a ton of them. That, then you remember the whole, you're, you're in GameSpot or EB, and you pick the game up off the shelf, and you kind of give it that, that lift test. Uh, the heft, yeah, sure. you got to check that. The 360 version of The Witcher 2 it has the most amazing lift test of any, you know, regular edition game of this generation. Yeah, certainly oh, any box yeah. that small. It's almost like what? Are there iron ingots in here? <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it, it? it? It's got three discs in it. It's got a full color pullout map. It has the instruction manual, and then it's got actually like a quest guide, which is kind of like yeah. a e strategy guide in there. I mean, it's just packed, which is. It's awesome. When was the last time you got that out of a 360 game? Yep. So I love that. Um, now, I, by the way, real quick, have you looked at that strategy guide? I flipped through it. Yeah. Don't don't do that. It's all just spoil. I hate that thing. It, it is. It's, it's not a strategy guide. It's just uh, it's a walkthrough for a freaking story driven game. I yeah. I mean, I love the fact it's that I'm just straight up walkthrough. In fact. Yeah, and I love the fact that I'm getting this beautifully printed, four color, glossy booklet. But the content of it, oh good lord, I hate that stupid thing. Uh, right. It almost looks like that's a nod to the fact that okay, we're going to put out this 360 version. And the story is so complex that there are going to be a lot of 15-year-old kids out there who are going to have no idea where this is going. So maybe it's a service to that. I don't know. Well, I would have rather – okay, so let me, let's me let go around the table here. Let's say that you were putting out Witcher 2. You know everything you know about it. You've got this opportunity for a glossy, four-color printed book, you know, thick page stock. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to give a lot of extra weight. What would you put – in that book, because I have an idea, but I want to go around the table. McMaster, you're in charge of Witcher 2. You've got this great book you can print. You know, you've you, you've got I don't know 40 pages or whatever. What would you put in those pages? All right. Well, I'm gonna <clears throat> burn a little uh, credit as a human being here, Uh-oh. and uh, say that I would probably put the uh, Polish Playboy spread with Tris Marigold in it. You know, McMaster, I like the way you're thinking because that would <laughs> that, that, that copies my friend. And also, it would totally fit with their theme. I mean, I know a lot of people haven't played the original Witcher, but they had, like, naked uh, cards for all your sexual conquests in that game. So, yep. yeah. Uh, <laughs> McMaster, that's a good answer. I should have saved you for last. Chris, what do you got to follow that? Because I know I can't live up to that. Yeah, I well, got, I got, I, my answer is going to seem really lame. I would have put a lot more about uh, combat and incorporating the importance of incorporating all your tools. One thing that never gets mentioned, and you kind of have to figure it out by looking at the skill tree, is how important positioning is in The Witcher 2. Uh, if you get stabbed in the back, I believe at the start it does 400% damage. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't even realize that until I got out of the prologue and started putting points into the sword part of the skill tree, and it's like, oh, that mitigates damage down to 
Ah, that's why I die so quick when I get surrounded. Okay, I got it. That makes sense. Very tactical stuff. Yeah, I love the combat. And so you would, of course, explain the combat better. Yeah, and I would would explain, you know, how to use the various signs to your advantage Uh so that you're not leaning on the same one that everybody used when the game first came out. They do kind of just throw you into it, don't they? Now, did they change that at all in the Enhanced Edition, Chris? Do you know, like, is it is it better explained, or do you still kind of feel well, like you're just given all the tools and dumped into the deep end? Well, uh, actually, back in October or September, they put out this Witcher 2 2.0 patch for the PC version uh, that added the arena at the beginning to kind of explain how to use your signs, uh, your bombs, your traps, all that, your potions. I, I did not like that tutorial bit, actually. Yeah, it's it's very dry. Uh, what I will say it has its use for me is if you come back to the game after not playing for about mm-hmm. a week or two, it's a great way to get back up to speed on combat before you get Geralt killed in a <laughs> scene in the game that you don't want to get him killed. But yeah, it's pretty dry. It's pretty dry. Well, you know what? As a guy who loves reading manuals, Chris, I like what you would have done w- with that. So, However, what I would have done as a guy, one of my favorite things about The Witcher was the, the storytelling and the writing. And right. I loved how, what was the bard's name? Dandelion? Or did I just make Dandelion. that up? No, Dandelion, nope. yeah. Yeah. So I, I love how the quest journal is Dandelion's recollection of events right. and how each entry evolves as you play. Uh, so I don't know how I would fold this in there, but I would somehow make that printed thing dandelion stuff so that you could read that without having to sit in front of the computer. Because I think that would be a great added value thing, you know, tote that around, read it in bed or night, whatever. Uh, I, I would put dandelion's awesome little text entries in that that uh, that added book. That's what I would have picked. Because uh, yeah. I, I love that bit. If I... if. <laughs> Uh, if I wanted to like take a real stab at this, to be honest, I would. No, probably... no, but master, seriously, as if I were the producer, I would, I would give you a raise. <laughs> I would, I would. Well, I would... like, yes, but no, uh, you can't really do what I said, though. Yes, you so... can. Why can't you? It's it's rated M. The the sure. new, the, the sort of the, the the sexuality of the Witcher, and it's not crass, stupid, pandering sexuality like Lollipop Chainsaw. I mean, there's really actual hot meaningful sex and actual relationships and and even non-relationships i mean the the witcher is a great example of how to do r-rated sexuality in a video game i mean it's sure. not something i would want kids to play but it's it's genuinely adult and even those stupid little cards and you know that that stupid little centerfold thing they did with Triss. I mean, I think that kind of gets some of the r-rated sexuality of the witcher so mcmaster you can't change your answer because i loved your answer uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't change it. I just, uh, you know, the only other realistic choice for me would be to maybe include like a couple of chapters of one of the Witcher books. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> so that people could say they're reading it for the articles. Well, yeah, that's exactly yeah. <laughs> I just think that they're actually really well written, uh, right. and uh, it's a shame that they haven't caught on as well here. Well, I think uh, what a lot of people don't realize is how much of the good gameplay of The Witcher 2 is actually based in the lore of the stories. Right, like exactly. The Which meditation, awesome. the pre the way he has to prepare with the potions and the meditation before combat. It's a great game mechanic, and I was amazed in uh, reading the first book to discover that's in the book. Oh. You know, that, that's in there. 
Oh, I love that too. Okay, yeah. wow, very cool. Yeah, that's that's the best thing about like uh, the Witcher series to me is like that they've stayed really close to the uh, feeling of the game and the feeling of the source material. So it feels like an honest extension of the work instead of just something based on it. Yeah, like they make the point that uh, Geralt's a mutant and yep. that the potions he drinks will kill anybody else, and they still affect him. So he has to like sit down and really. You know, prepare himself so that he doesn't get sick or fall over dead from drinking these potions that uh, affect his body chemistry, I guess. Right. And that's why there's a toxicity meter, of course, right, too. Right. Is that, yeah, right. Every time he takes the potion, there's a certain amount of like physical uh, strain it puts on his body. Uh, and uh, yeah. yeah. So, Chris, those of us who played it on the PC, of course, uh, I have that version too. I've, I've played both actually. I'm a ah, player. well, that's what I'm curious about is how is it? How does it look? How does it feel on the 360? How do the controls translate? The controls, especially the fighting controls, are terrific. Um, it's a little bit clunky when you have to go into your inventory. It's a lot clunky when you want to go read journal entries. Mm. But the actual physical fighting are the part of fighting. I think works great. You do have to get a little bit used to one thing, uh, and that's camera control in fights. The PC yeah. version tends to snap to right behind Geralt when you roll past somebody and try to backstab him. In the 360 version, you have to get kind of adept at using the right stick to bring the camera around, bringing the camera around so you're not taking uh, a blind shot. Right. Uh, the graphics look great. Uh, they obviously don't look as good as the PC. Uh, you notice things like there's a lot more doorways to give the 360 version time to unload old graphics and load in new stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I'm really happy. You know, I love that there, there are a couple of moments in this game that did, you know, I've been playing computer role-playing games since Wizardry in 1980 or 84, and there are a couple of moments in The Witcher 2 that are unlike anything that I've ever experienced in a uh, role-playing game mm -hmm. on a computer. Nice. So, I don't care about this, but I'm going to ask on behalf of McMaster, yeah. uh, how stingy is it with achievements? Or are uh, you going to get through and have like a good solid seven, 800 points? Uh, it's real stingy with achievements. Oh. It is... <laughs> Right now, right now, I am in the middle of chapter three, and I'm at like 400, 400 achievement points. And so you figure I'll probably pick up another fifty to seventy-five finishing the game, and then maybe a hundred on completion. Yikes! Isn't that kind of par for the course? So, like, I find that a lot yeah, of games sometimes. Like, yeah. Like, I'll play through a game, and I'm like, "What? Only 400 points? Come on!" <laughs> so, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you, when I first started playing the 360 version, I had not played the tutorial part at the beginning um, <laughs> in the PC. So I go through it, and uh, that was—I didn't spend a ton of time with it at first because I was playing something else, I think, and. Uh, so I only really did that part, and I remember thinking, man, this game looks pretty bad compared to the PC version. But then I got into uh, Flotsam. Uh, it is Flotsam, right? 
Yeah. The first, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and the surrounding area, and on the 360, it looks really nice still. So I, I have been impressed by the, what they did with the graphics. I mean, it, of course, is going to look ten times better on a, like, a high-end PC with everything turned up. That's just how it goes. But uh, it's a nice-looking 360 game, there's no doubt. Chris, do you have a Nintendo Wii? Uh, I do, and I know what game you're going to tell me to play next, and it's on my list. Well, I'm not going to tell you to play it. Instead, I'm going to break this down like another Les Miserables versus Phantom of the Opera thing. Okay. I'm, I'm guessing in the world, some people are Witcher 2 people, some people are Xenoblade Chronicles people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're both great RPGs, but which one do you gravitate towards? McMaster, I know you've played both. Would you be more of a Witcher 2 guy? Or Xenoblade 2? You know what? That's almost unfair to ask, because now that I'm asking, I'm not sure I even have an answer. Yeah, I mean, I would have to go with The Witcher. I mean, just have to, because... Why? Why would you do that to Xenoblade Chronicles? You know what? You haven't even finished Xenoblade Chronicles, so there goes your credibility. (laughs) (laughs) I've played 40 hours and haven't finished it, all right? Yeah, you've still got got another 80 to go, McMaster. I know. Yeah, there you have it. You know, I'm going to retract that premise because I can't pick now because I love them both for different reasons, and it's not a Phantom of the Opera or Le Miserable thing where it's one or the other, clearly. it's yeah. You know what? It's a both thing. So there. Is the writing yeah. in uh, Xenoblade Chronicles as good as it no. is? It's good. It's good in a very JRPG-y right, way. Right, right. Understand. Uh, in a non-offensive, like, like I hated the writing in, in most of Final Fantasy, but it's so oh, okay. as far as good JRPGs go, I think it's great, but it's still got a lot of JRPG conventions, um, and it's no Witcher 2, though. Uh, because, so. you know, there's a scene in Chapter 2, I think it's at the end of Chapter 2 of The Witcher 2, that is, you know, I talked about, it, it's the first time in a video game that I made a choice oh, right. that I didn't want to make. It was actually a choice where I was like, oh, you find out that this king is really kind of not a real good guy without being too spoilery. And you're like, ah, this guy deserves to die. But, man, it's really going to make Chapter 3 a slog. It's going to make it confusing. It's going to add a bunch of extra work to Chapter 3. So I'm going to let this jerk live. And then he just keeps talking, and he talks about taking liberties with uh, one of your female companions. And I'm like, you know what, buddy? Forget it. Chapter 3 is going to be tougher. You're down. <laughs> Gameplay be damned. I care yeah, about the sorry. narrative. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, the Witcher is one giant gray area of a game. Yeah. But I just thought that was great because instead of thinking like me, the game player, it was actually like I was – it's like, wow, really? Dude, you're going to go there about her? You know what, pal? You're <laughs> – I can't wait to see you get what you got coming to you. You know, I hear people talk about Mass Effect, like, 1, 2, and 3 in those same terms where they actually care about it. And I never, ever cared once about Mass Effect on the, that level. Uh, but playing Witcher 2, I can sort of feel, oh, this is what it must be like to really be into Mass Effect, you know, if you're one of those guys. <laughs> so, All right, oh, yeah. Witcher 2, uh, not the 2011 PC release, but the 2012 Xbox 360. What is it? Enhanced? Extended Edition? Enhanced? Enhanced Edition. Enhanced yeah. Edition. All right, Chris, very good. McMaster, what do you got? You know what, McMaster, I'll go next because I, right. I think I'm worried you might steal my pick. All right, well, go ahead. All right, this is a game you and I played uh, when you were here for E3. 
Uh, it's a real-time strategy game. I put the review up yesterday, so it's no surprise that I, I adore the new Rebellion expansion for Sins of a Solar Empire. But I mainly want to bring it up as my game of the week, because Wingmaster, you and I had a, a great match that I think brought <laughs> out some of the cool stuff that's added to the expansion. Even though we didn't play it through to the end, there was some good back and forth, and I feel like we got to see some of the the, the new... Uh, like, the Titans came into play, the uh, new victory condition, one of them was sort of important yeah. for us. Uh, you know, we both got to flex the tech trees a lot. Um, so just to back up, uh, Sins of a Solar Empire is a real-time strategy game. You know, some people will call it a 4X, but I think that's a little beside the point. It plays by the classic tenets of real-time strategy. You make resources, you turn them into military units, you use them to smash the other guy's units and resources. Uh, the difference is, it's a beautiful spaceship game. It's not full 3D like Homeworld. It still takes place on a flat plane, and you move around different star systems. Uh, but beautiful graphics, they do a great job of showing space battles. You, you know, we we so often love the special effects budgets in the Battlestar Galactica game and Babylon 5 and all that stuff comes alive in Sins of a Solar Empire, you know, that we get to enjoy some of those same cool space battles. Um, but it's, it's very much an RTS, uh, three factions. The new expansion breaks each of the three factions down into two separate sub-factions. So where before you had three sides, now you have six sides. Uh... There's the same sense of heroes that you get in Warcraft 3, where you have a hero unit that earns experience and gets new spells and powers. They have that with capital ships. Uh, they've added a lot of cool, if you want to play it against uh, NPCs, there's a lot of cool diplomacy stuff. And by diplomacy stuff, I don't mean this kind of soft... Uh, guesswork diplomacy, like in a Civ game, where you're like, yeah, I'm going to try to see if this guy will trade this for this, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Uh, like, the, the diplomacy in Sins is very, very numbers-driven. Uh, Civ 4 is actually a bit like this, where you get a tooltip that shows you exactly how much somebody likes or doesn't like you. But here, each number, as far as your diplomatic relationship, gives you new options for these things called pacts that give you and your buddy a bonus. So the diplomacy stuff, very systems-driven. It's not guesswork. Is this guy going to like me? Is he not going to like me? It's all about making that number hit thresholds for new bonuses. Uh, I love their diplomacy system. Um, the expansion also adds cool new victory conditions. Basically, before, you either had to win a diplomatic victory, which involved getting that number up high enough, or you just had to wipe out the other guy. Now, they've got some new... Uh, victory conditions. Uh, and McMaster, why don't you talk about what we had going on? We had a uh, victory condition of, there was like a, what was it called exactly? Was it, it like is, a plant, a Planet X or something like that? Yeah, I like that name, but it's called uh, the Occupation Planet. That's right. Yeah, we had the Occupation uh, Victory uh, Condition. So what that is, is that either you can, I guess, do completely dominate the other civilization, uh, which would mean you'd win anyway, or you can take this planet, which uh, is highly defended and uh, very uh, very difficult to get to. Uh, for people, for the older generation that will remember these games, uh, Master of Orion, uh, it's kind of like Orion in Master of Orion. Ah, okay. So, yeah, it has this certain, yeah, like, super advanced civilization on it, and if you conquer it, you win. And you have to research uh, uh, a special level. Not conquer. <laughs> no, you, you have conquer. to 
Well, you conquer it, but you have to actually, what was it, hold it. You have to occupy uh, it. You have to well. Right. You have to clear out all those defenders because there are a lot mm-hmm. of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you have to colonize the planet, and then you have to hold it for a certain number of times. To right. get there, you also have to research uh, star to star jumps. And right. the way that that kind of works is, uh, think of a game like Master of Magic Two, where you had the regular world and then you had a mirror world, or uh, Warlock, right. the recent Warlock that came out. You go through these portals and you're in a new world. Each star is kind of like its own map. So, to get to another star, you have to research a certain tech, and then when you get there, that's where the occupation planet is. It's behind one of these stars. So, McMaster, you and I had a game going. Me being a classic, uh, I'm pretty aggressive when I play an RTS, particularly when I know I'm playing against someone who's kind of new and is not going to be aggressive. Uh, so, you and I had a game going. I, I sort of boxed you in. So, I was like, right. I'm going to sit at this planet, I'm going to defend it, and while I defend oh. it... I'm going to keep you from controlling much of the map, and then I'm going to go through this little star and find the occupation world. No, 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 no. See, there's more to it than that because, uh, see, you have to understand, Tom and I, when we're playing these games, we also talk like we do on this podcast quite often. And, uh, <laughs> of course, there's a little bit more shit talking involved. But uh, so before all of this boxing in, uh, we, we started looking around on these planets for artifacts. Oh, McMaster, I forgot about that. God. <laughs> This game is so buggy and broken. I hate Sins of the Solar Empire Rebellion now. You're reminding me how much... Oh, this game is awful. I give it one star. <laughs> so so I, I send all these little feeler troops down to this one planet. It's kind of a bottleneck between where I am and where Tom is. And uh, I have them start attacking. And uh, it's going on for quite some time. And uh, during this time, uh, you can terraform your planets and do different sorts of, like, improvements on your planets to uh, make them either more physically viable, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things you can do is once you conquer a place is you can explore it. And in exploration, you have a chance now of finding artifacts. Well, uh, So just to I, explain this real quick, McMaster, because uh, the, the exploration option, it's basically saying, hey, you've got a new planet. Do you want to sink a bunch of money? Not a bunch. It's a reasonable sum. Do you want to sink money into what's basically a die roll? And if you sink money into this planet, if you get lucky, and I don't know if this is pre-designated when the map is generated or if it really is a die roll, but if you sink money into a planet and you get two options for each planet, it might come up with an artifact. Uh, okay, so go ahead, McMaster. I just want to explain that dynamic a little bit better. <laughs> so, uh, whenever, uh, you know, well, and Tom and I are sitting near each other, so we can hear each other's speakers. And I'm, I keep exploring these planets and getting uh, turned. You know, it's like you find nothing, and every every time that happens, I hear Tom go, "Ha ha," you know, just like out of the corner. <laughs> So, like, then uh, he starts uh, missing planets, of course, and I'm ha-haing back. Uh, and then I find two artifacts in a row, which uh, which really made the game interesting. And these uh, are global. These artifacts that you find yeah. don't just affect the planet. You can also find a bonus that helps that one planet, maybe gives it sure. better, better income or you can build more structures. But when you find an artifact, it's a global modifier to your entire civilization. So yeah, I uh, and around this time I, I finished cleaning off uh, the planet that uh, is at this bottleneck uh, just in time for Tom ships to warp in and wipe up my forces that were decimated by the attack. Because that's the thing is you wait for the other guy to to, <laughs> to crack that tough nut and then when he's weakened you come in and you take the the sweet meat inside the nut uh, so yes. to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so you basically let him wait ashore and then you came in and. Basically, exactly. 
took out his weak. Nice. Good work. Right. Exactly. It's like, okay, I'm here to mop up now. Uh, let me kill your last few guys. And then, and, but however, the thing is, I felt justified in doing this because McMaster got something like three artifacts and I had none. <laughs> like later oh, in the game, I finally found one. But McMaster, you had one. Well, why don't you explain? So here's <laughs> the deal now. So McMaster, he's been. He's been beaten off. I've got him boxed in. He can't get out. I got my main fleet keeping him from expanding across the map. So, McMaster, you've got one artifact that does what for you? <laughs> it, uh, it increases the um, amount of research points I get and decreases the amount of time it takes to research things. So that's going to let you clamber <laughs> up the tech tree much faster than I can. Right. And uh, at this point, Tom has outproduced me because he has a... Uh, he waited for me to weaken myself, and then he came in and wiped it, wiped uh, the area clean. So and, I, and plus, I'm running mines on the rest on most of the rest of the map too. Like I've shut right. you out of expanding, and I'm sucking minerals and crystals out and right. credits out of most of the map. Right. It's just a, it's like this weird bottleneck planet that basically I can't get past. <laughs> and um, so I start turtling, and I just start building up my tech as quickly as possible. And, uh, but in a specific direction. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and this is this was the fun part, because uh, remember, I can hear Tom's speakers. So he's, <laughs> he's playing like this psychic race. Uh, I don't remember who they were. They're the uh, Advent. They're called the, the Advent. Advent. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I hear, um, enemy race has begun construction on a Titan. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. I was going to save up and surprise you. That's right, because my, my psychic chicks, and I guess that's how I orcs, like you, I was hearing the message of what you were doing. Like it announces to the rest of the galaxy when you start building this ship called a Titan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, I began work on my Titan and started moving all of my production around. And uh, the Titan is quite difficult to get to, but because of this artifact, uh, it actually afforded me to make one and almost a second one by the end of the game. Because you have to, uh, you don't just build a Titan. You you research four levels of technology. Oh, yeah. It's a huge money and time sink. It was a little bit less of a time sink for you because of the artifact you'd found. But once you do that, then you build the Titan construction yard, and then you actually start constructing the Titan itself. Well, so, no, you can oh. you can build the construction yard at any point, I think. Uh, or maybe it's after you um, research the first part. But once okay. you... Research the first part, which I did, and then built the Titan construction yard and started construction, it stops at 25%. So oh, okay. you, you have to research the next level before it'll go to 50%, and so on and so forth. So you can basically buy the Titan in installments. Like right, right. First quarter, then I'm buying the second quarter, third quarter, then fourth quarter. Done, right? Well, yeah, the only bitch of it is that you have to pay for the whole thing up front. So it's not like you can just start firing one off. The second you uh, start the game, you know, just to be ready at the end of the game, is you have to pay. God, it was so prohibitively expensive, too. And it gets announced to everyone else. So everyone right. else now knows that instead of building up a fleet, you know, instead of spending that money on economic development or whatever, you're going for the, the Titan route. Yeah. yeah. Which is really kind of like the turtle route. <laughs> you know, you say it's turtle. I think it's more in the traditional RTS language. I think it's more booming. Where you are, you are pushing money for a later game. Well, you know, is it turtling? I don't know, McMaster. Uh, but it, at any rate, so it finally came out, and at that point, like I had a good fleet going, but man, there was some great back and forth. We must have had like three or four engagements where you move yeah. that Titan into the bottleneck planet, and I was ready for you. I was like, okay, I know a Titan is coming. Uh, let me build up defenses. Um, 
And and we had a couple of battles, like these great big epic battles where we both had to pull back. Like I, I was sure you were about to take the planet. You were sure you were about to lose your Titan. So we would kind yeah. of retreat to our respective corners. It was this almost boxing match of phase in, fight, 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 phase out. You know, phase in, fight, 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 phase right. out. Yeah. And you, you eventually uh, built that one thing that stopped me from – it increased my phase-out time. Ah, so yeah. So here's again where SINS has this really cool unit balance. So one of the things that I knew I could focus on with – the Titan has a few big guns, and it was just like slamming any – like ships. You might have even taken out a couple of my capital ships. But it doesn't have much to do against little strike craft. So I literally had something like like 24 bomber squadrons in that system. <laughs> so you would fly in this huge, colossal tech titan. It was a beautiful thing, too. And then 24, all these bomber squadrons would just swarm it. It, it was insane looking. Like, it was one of the coolest space battles I think I've ever yeah. seen anything. Like, it was just so much was going on. On the screen, it was crazy. And eventually, I was—I mean, you figured this out—but eventually, I was like, "McMaster, you know, uh, there's a there's a specific ship that will counter these bombers. You could build a few of those." But by then, because I told you to build those, I knew to build missile ships oh, to counter yeah, those. Absolutely. So there was all this like Trump counter Trump going on. Uh, and in the end, did I kill the Titan finally? Yes, I think, you I did. think I did. Yeah. So the bombers just just ran it down. You would pull it back, and, and oh no, what happened was you jumped yeah. in, and I had built these things called phase inhibitors. All the races get them, and what that is, it's kind of a net where when ships jump into your system, they can't leave. Uh, it takes them extra long to leave, so like they really jump in too, a really just, long time. Right, it's like eight thousand percent, I think, it was something like that. So once you think, oh, I'm losing this battle, I better pull out again. The phase inhibitors have something else to say about that. Right, so you're right. stuck there taking damage. I eventually wore your Titan down. Now we could have pushed the game on further, but at this point, right. the writing was on the wall. I had had the rest of the map. I think I ended up losing most of my fleet when I tried to go to the occupation planet, and we realized. Whoa! Look at all the defenders there. <laughs> yeah, it was nobody's crazy. gonna occupy this planet. Will not be occupied anytime soon. Definitely right. an end game kind of condition thing. Um, but so that's my game of the week, McMaster. I had a great time playing our game. I've I've played several games against the AI since then. Uh, I, I love that game. It's it's a long game. I mean, we took that was at least what two three hours. Yeah, I think it was like two hours. Yeah, yeah. that was a, that was a long one. It's definitely not a lunch hour RTS. Uh, no. and I think that's where a lot of the four X comparisons come from. When you sit down and you play Civilization four, five, whichever one you like, it's going to be a ten, twenty hour experience. So sure. when you sit down to play Sins of a Solar Empire, unlike most RTSs, it's going to be a two, three, four hour experience. Sure. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So. Nice. Nice. All right, so that's my game of the week. So, uh, McMaster, did I trump you? Was that going to be your game of the week? No, actually. I, uh, I've i got one for you. i right. got a fancy one for you. No, actually, it is, it's something that we have talked about, but I don't think we've talked about it in any real great depth. But it was mentioned earlier, which is funny, and that's Dragon's Dogma. Mm-hmm. The one that Chris – so, Chris, you are playing this, or you, you, are, you are, have your eye on it? I've got it. Uh, Oh, right, right. You're not using my fire. Yeah, I'm not not using your fire mage because I need a tank. All right, so we can all talk about it from having played it. Uh, You know what? If you're listening... Uh, I don't think you can really spoil stuff in Dragon's Dogma. <laughs> no, like, I, you can spoil. Well, I mean, maybe. So, so I was really surprised 
Chris, were, was I playing Diablo with you when you said something about... Was that yeah, you? yeah, yeah. Yeah, that so was me. You apologized for potentially spoiling Diablo 3 to me, and afterwards I was like, no, you, I didn't care, I didn't even notice. You, you, you made a great call about the identity of a character. You were like, I bet so-and-so is such-and-such, and, such. and you were absolutely well, they, right. They kind of foreshadowed it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, see, in order for it to be foreshadowed, you have to be paying attention to the story. <laughs> and yeah. I, I could not skip over those cutscenes fast enough, so... You spoiled something. It wasn't a matter of me thinking, uh, like, I, I was surprised at what you said because I hadn't even considered it and didn't care. So, But I was impressed that you got it right. So I think some people might feel the same way about Dragon's Dogma. I've played a fair bit, and I'm not sure I could tell you much about the story because I'm not paying a lot of attention to it. Uh, so I just want to say, if you are listening, we might spoil bits of Dragon Dogma. So if you care about its story, you might want to fast forward about 15 minutes. Uh, so that said, we're all playing, so let's go ahead and let loose. McMaster, why is this your game of the week? Um, uh, it's my game of the week because I've had this long, weird relationship with it. Uh, I saw it first at E3 last year, uh, where I got to play the Griffin fight, and I assumed the game was going to be multiplayer because there were four components on screen, and it was a pretty decent action-y fight. Uh, I was then told, no, it's a single-player RPG, and I, I was really confused about that. I, I didn't really get to play the rest of that demo. Um, then the demo came out, and it was it was all right. Uh, so I, at the same time, Diablo 3 and Max Payne 3 came out. Uh, played a lot of Diablo, got Max Payne for the multiplayer. Uh, went to E3 um, and ended up seeing this uh, at Tom's house, and uh, it... It's really not what I expected. It is not what I expected at all. It's uh, Can I talk briefly about showing it to you at my house? Sh sure, yeah, absolutely. So you had been like, hey, I'd heard about this, and I know you kind of liked it. Can you show it to me? And so at one point I was like, yeah, I'll show you, but it's going to probably be a lot of walking around, and you, I, maybe I'll show you a battle. But all that stuff you experienced in the demo where you're fighting a griffin and you fight a dragon, that stuff you don't see a lot. Like, it, it can be very rare, and I, I may not be able to show you anything cool like that. So I booted <laughs> it up, and I ran around in that main city, which is, is it called Grand Sis? Grand Soren? Grand Soren. Like Soren Johnson, that's what I think. So, right, Grand, right. so Grand Soren, I'm running around the city. I finish up a few quests there. You did this great thing, McMaster, where I couldn't find someone, and all you're supposed to do is look up. <laughs> like you, you basically solved that quest for me. I was showing, I was trying to show it to you as an example of, here's where this game is really frustrating. I have no idea what's going on. I have to go to this point and find someone. I can't find that person. So I go to that point to demonstrate to you, uh, he's nowhere to be seen. And you were like, well, is he maybe on the roof? And we go outside, and sure enough, the guy is on the roof. <laughs> so I'm showing you this boring sort of city quest stuff, and and then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to go outside, and I'll show you a brief battle. It's probably not going to be that spectacular. Maybe I'll fight some goblins or whatever. So I walk out the city doors, and I love that the game does this. And I had never seen this. I've maybe sunk, I don't know, 15, 20 hours or whatever into it. I walk out of the main doors, and a freaking griffin lands right in front of the city, and the guards are running up fighting it. And I'm like, am I supposed to get involved in this fight? Is this a scripted thing? Is this a story beat? So I went in to get into the fight, and then the griffin flew off. 
So I'd never seen that before, where right outside of the city gates, one of those big epic battles happened. You know, it's kind of like Skyrim, where a dragon might just land somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, after ta- after warning you, hey, this is going to be boring, I can't show you anything cool, this weird, emergent, dynamic battle happened with a griffin. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty strange. Uh, yeah, you just walk outside, like a bunch of goblins run up, a griffin, uh, the griffin gets set on fire, it flies off, and then everything's like fine again. Yeah, it was yeah. Like, yeah, it was like nothing really got resolved. It was just kind of like, it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> back to work. Um, but yeah, no, it was. Uh, it's really surprising to me because the world that they've designed is um, reminiscent to me in a way of Gothic in that it, there's there's no hard barriers for the most part, other than the difficulty of the area and your preparation to go to it. Um, and in that vein, it also feels a lot like Monster Hunter, where you're given a certain amount of control over your environment and tools to deal with it and let go to survive in whatever means are necessary. Um, but the thing that is really interesting about the game is the pawns. Um, now, I mean, other than, of course, like I really like a... Well, kind of an open world feeling that feels more crafted than, say, for instance, the Skyrim, which I love. Skyrim, but Bethesda's big thing is they they create this world as kind of a blank canvas, and then whatever happens happens a lot of the times. Uh, whereas in something like Dragon's Dogma or the Gothic series, it feels a lot more guided in what happens when you're moving through the world. Uh, but anyway, the pawn system and what's fascinating about it is that when you start the game, you create your main character, and you create a pawn that is associated with your world. Then you have two other pawns. And what pawns are is a race of people that are known as pawns that have no real, I guess, desire to do anything for themselves and want to have someone lead them around uh, and command them. And uh, that is your role. So you can go to this mystical guild and these stones to look through, uh, I guess, a lot of pawns and find the ones you want. Uh, you can summon them from your friends list, or and the world is actually kind of full of pawns, too. Uh, they're just kind of thrown into the world, wandering the roads, etc., etc. Um, and you can go through your friends list and, and find whatever you want to uh, accompany you. And uh, Tom and I have this friend, Harkonis. Uh, now Chris does too. I think Chris, you've got Harkonis yep. on your friends list. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so yep. The, uh, yeah. Now his character, when I was playing the other day, is up to 118. <laughs> so, well, I've got 118 Harkonis with me this time. But um, and having better pawns, of course, does make the game a bit easier. But it, it doesn't make it kind of a slam dunk like you might think. Um, I know. You played a lot with it, Tom. Well, you know, McMaster, actually, I seem to recall also when I was showing it to you, we went into the guild where the pawns are, and uh, if you don't uh, occasionally update your recruited pawns, like if I were to recruit your pawn, McMaster, when when he or she is like 10th level, and then I don't refresh it, like let her go and re-recruit her, she will always be pretty much 10th level. But as you play... On the server, she will go up in levels. So I could have her in tenth level. In the meantime, you've played. You're up to. You've gotten her up to thirtieth level. I have to go back to that guild and re-recruit her for her to basically refresh. Right. So uh, when I was showing you the game, 
Yeah, definitely, it's definitely worth it. So when I was showing you the game, McMaster, I, I went to show you this stuff, and I had Harkonis at, like, I don't know, level 30 or whatever. And I was like, oh, look, he's upgraded to level 90. Let me let me rehire him at that level. Then, as I was showing you the game at one point, I think this was you, we were walking around, and a big old Cyclops came out. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I'm not ready to fight him. You know, we're, I'm just going to show you him. You can look at it. I was on a ledge above it. That's a Cyclops C. And while I was doing that, Harkonis's 90th level pawn pretty much went down there and single-handedly beat it. <laughs> and, and I kind of feel like that's an odd... Uh, like, I, I love some of the odd decisions that Dragon's Dogma makes on a design level, but I kind of wonder, like, what does that do to the game if somebody's just started playing? There's nothing yeah. to keep me from having Harkonis' level 90 pawn pretty much play a lot of the combat for me. Uh, yeah, and that's kind snap, of what... They should snap that to your level. Either snap it to your level, or for instance, I've found rift crystals. You know, there's gold that you spend... But I don't right. think I've ever seen anything that requires me to spend those. And I think the intent is that you are supposed to spend those on the pawns. Like I, that should I found gate... something. Okay, so what, what do you spend rift crystals on? Uh, there's uh, a vendor near, I, I don't know if it's in more than one camp, but there's this one camp and has a vendor near the crystal and you can, or the rift stone, and you can go talk to him and you can buy stuff like those glasses that Harkonnes is wearing, or rings, or stuff to change your character's appearances. And so it, it's just visual? It, it's cosmetics? Well, the other... A lot of it, and but there's some that you can buy potions to change their, the way they act as well. And... You know, I'm probably going to get this absolutely wrong, but I believe that pawns that you take on from your friends list are free. But if for some reason you don't have any friends, I don't know, uh, any pawns that you take on outside of your friends list, you actually have to pay Rift Crystals for, I believe. Well, that's what I was oh. wondering about, is it seems like the Rift Crystals would be an ideal way to gate how powerful a pawn you get. Like, that should be a kind of a money sink. But if they're just going to bypass that for friends, then, you know what, Harkonis is a jerk for breaking the game. <laughs> God! That guy! I mean, it just strikes me, there are so many curious design decisions that I... I love that it's so different and that they're doing things weirdly, but I can't help but question, you know, why are they doing this? Wouldn't the game, wouldn't more conventional wisdom say, do it this way instead of that way? Uh, and just the fact that I, that Harkonis' pawn is, is pretty much like making combat trivial for me at this point. You know, McMaster, another thing, I think I, I had to get to this bandit stronghold and I'd never been able to get through because I kept getting swarmed. <laughs> I did that too, actually. I, I have a different take on that one now. You'll find entertaining. But Harkonis' pawn, did you? He just pretty much cleared it out for me. He, you know, he's a ranged guy. And uh, did how did how did you get through there? I didn't fight a single person. Uh, I remember how. Uh, okay, well, here this takes a little bit of background uh, to on the pawn system is that your pawn, the one that you create that's associated with your world, can be hired out by people and by your friends, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when they're out there, they can learn of places that you haven't been, and they can learn about monsters that you haven't fought. And they can give you these audible clues and uh, like hints and stuff really like that. I think that's yeah. the coolest thing. I think it's people. awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's it's that's awesome. yeah. So like, I have Harkonis with me, and see, I don't know. He really, I didn't have him for a while, so I, it didn't make as huge of a difference. 
I, I honestly think in my game, it still takes us a while to kill something. It's just that I think the pawns and my character are now more familiar with killing a Cyclops, if you know what I mean. But anyway, so we go into this bandit fortress, and Tom, when he did it, the guy says, well, if you want this book back, you're either going to have to, uh, you know, he's like, I don't want your gold, and there's nothing you can offer me, so you better settle it with some metal or something. And so we're like, well, I have no idea. So Tom, you know, swings at the guy, and a big fight starts, and they, they like, they like clear out the fortress. So I remembered that. So I, right. I was thinking, well, what's he going to do? So I just kind of walked past him, and then I walked up the tower, and then I, I did the little jumping puzzle to get to where the chest is. I opened the chest and took the book. I took a fairy stone out, threw it in the air, and took ah. it back to town. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, I guess that's what he could offer me. So because you knew where the book was, right? Yeah. You just went and got it and left. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, see, that's and a- that's. I mean, any other game would script it, where the moment you sure. either walk past a checkpoint, it's going to activate all the bandits, and they're going to go aggro. I mean, that that's a curious decision, and, I, and bless their hearts for making it. It, it makes for a different gameplay experience. Uh, but, like, why did they do it that way? <laughs> and Yeah, the fairy stones are really expensive, like much more so than I think I got paid for than the quest. Uh, so you uh, really have to weigh out whether or not that's worth it to you and whether – I don't know if they would have attacked if I left. But, I mean, that, that's something that absolutely reminded me of, of a game like Gothic 2 as well. I, there's situations like – I remember once in Gothic 2, there's this, this <laughs> there's this cave. It's like full of the undead. And there's this – I had no idea. I was way too low level to be in it. So I run in. I see all these skeletons, so I keep running. I run past this, like, glowing sword – it's floating off the ground. Run around it. Skeletons follow me, and I run back. And I, I end up running through the woods for like an hour of real time, trying to get away from these stupid freaking skeletons, and uh, eventually running back into the cave and stealing the sword and running out again. It was like real Benny Hill kind of uh, level stuff. But it, uh, it ended up uh, just it, – it's not that there was any scripted events. There was a, like a set of – tools involved in creating the scene and then what you did with them uh, made all the difference and that's uh that's something that i really appreciate about dragon's dogma is that yeah you you can fight those guys you can do whatever you want as long as you you know get away with it and it's in the rules of the game there's nothing that's going to stop you McMaster, I wonder how much of those fairy stones, and by the way, we're saying fairy like uh, like a boat you get on to carry you somewhere and not like a, a little diminutive uh, chick with wings. Uh, the fairy stones are the only concession the game makes to fast travel. Normally, right. you have to walk somewhere if you want to get there. If it's nighttime when you're doing it, you have to do it during nighttime. You can't press a button and have time fast forward. You can't fast travel. But the fairy stones will teleport you back to the main city. So, McMaster, right. I'm wondering if maybe those are the game's money sink. Because I haven't really found much of a money sink yet, because there's not much gear churn, which is another thing that's very different. Yeah, it's weird. Like, it has that whole Demon Souls thing where you can upgrade your equipment, but it takes, like, different stuff, and you choose to enhance it, you know, at the at the armor. Uh, and it, it does some. Uh, but, yeah, I would say, yeah, these fairy stones are, like, 20,000 gold apiece, and they're, they're not sold just everywhere. There's a character... Uh, there's a shop in what's the Venery, uh, 
called The Black Cat, and he sells uh, special oddities or whatever. And one of the things he sells is fairy stones. Uh, Are they unlimited? Can you only get a certain amount? I'm pretty sure they're unlimited. I have like four or five on me now because like every time I go over there, I like to at least buy one and stock up. For right. in case something stupid happens, uh, but uh, there, you know, you make a pretty good chunk of money in this game. It's almost like a tax to say if if I want to go really far away, uh, it's better to have one of these because odds are I'm going to make enough money off of the stuff I fight and the, right. the conquests uh, to pay for it, and I either have to make the conscious choice of running through three or four days of night or nights worth of content or just going back and paying the tax. Um, and one thing that can't be overstated about the game is the way it's designed uh, is that as you go out and get into fights, you lose a certain amount of your overall health for good, unless, of course, you use a, uh, certain healing items and stuff can bring it back. But... Um, so the longer you're out and the longer you're away from rest, the more of your overall health you can never get back. Um, so say, for instance, you start off with 1,200 hit points. After a while, your max is 800 hit points. Uh, and then every time you lose some, you lose a few more hit points. So eventually you're down to like half health as your maximum, and you just really you can't really get that back, like I said, without eating items or uh, resting. And your pawns cannot get that back without resting. So your party just becomes exponentially weaker as you go forward. Um, and there are very few places you can actually rest in the game. Um, there's what that one. There's an encampment that's uh, far south of the city near where you start the game, and then there's an encampment I believe to the north. But I, that's the only two I've really found. Well, it does. A, what, what I like about this is it does a really good job of creating a sense of geography like place matters in a way that it doesn't matter when you're just fast traveling around places so absolutely absolutely it uh it feels uh yeah it absolutely feels like you're going somewhere um you have to plan it out there's no doubt uh whenever i decided to do this one uh quest uh near the beginning uh, i guess it's kind of near the beginning uh where you have to go help this uh, besieged fortress it's a pretty good ways away. So you have to take it in legs of a journey. Like I, my first uh, absolute stop was the um, southern encampment, and then you have to go basically plan it from there. And if for some reason I got turned around and went on the wrong road, I would just go back to the encampment and camp again. Because you, you don't really want to take the chance of getting like stuck out at night because I run into some really horrific crap at night. And of course, I know it's no fun. No. You say it's no fun, but I love how atmospheric it is. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, it's great, but it's also it's dangerous. a great way to reload and restart. I, re I ran into, like, a Lich King or something last night. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Uh, we ended up winning, I think. It was just, like, a really confusing dark fight. <laughs> so, Chris, I know you've been spending a lot of time with Witcher 2, but uh, how, how have you found Dragon's Dogma so far? Uh, I've... I've I'm fascinated by a lot of the design decisions. Um, I think it's a really interesting game. One of the things that I'll say about it that I love is I'm one of those idiots who modded up 
Oblivion and also Skyrim <laughs> to make it play as realistically as possible where my character would have to eat and sleep and no fast travel anywhere. And so, honestly, Dragon's Dogma kind of scratches that itch, which uh-huh. is really weird for a game on a console to do. And the other thing I'll say, you know, we were talking about that, oh, yeah, The Witcher 2 looks Looks really nice on a 360. Dragon's Dogma, I, I've been blown away by some of the set pieces and just the, oh, yeah. the landscape is just gorgeous in this game. I, you know, I'm going to be a little bit of a naysayer there in that I, okay. compared to compared to something like Skyrim, which just has so much atmosphere and uh, it, it seems like it's made to have these beautiful vistas. And I, I'm not that impressed with the terrain engine in Dragon's Dogma. Like they do a good viewing distance, but it just doesn't seem to have a lot of atmosphere. Like it's all kind of generic forest and a generic dungeon. And while it's serviceable, I just I, I don't see some of that artistic touch that Bethesda is so good at bringing to Skyrim. Well, it, it's, to me, it's kind of this... I enjoy the muted feel of it. Uh, it, it feels like... I don't know. It, it has this more uh, realistic weight to it. Sure, sure. I guess, than something like Skyrim. Now, I love Skyrim, of course. I love uh, like what they do with the graphics in that game. But, uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, I guess the whole persistence of the world where it's all kind of basically muted, it's, it has this yeah, certain weight. I don't know. That just appeals to me. Is that is that what you what's working about it for you, Chris? Like, when you talk about some of yeah, the distance and stuff? That and... Uh, I haven't seen Skyrim on... The- 360, only seen it on PC, mm-hmm. uh, and I love the way it looks on PC. I I would never have expected a game from a, you know a JRPG to look like that. Like I bring my own set of oh, sure. anti JRPG prejudices <laughs> to this, and so yeah, I'm actually really impressed that it it feels like. They made some a deliberate choice to try to kind of make a Skyrim, right? And I, I appreciate them doing that because it's a really interesting take on that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. The big thing about it too is like it brings a heck of a pedigree as far as it comes from you know the Capcom RPG background because like Monster Hunters, it's very similar to Monster Hunters feeling, and and that's not a really very standard uh, Japanese RPG either. Well, I will say, McMaster, you used the word muted and weight, and I, I think those are both great descriptions in a, in a weird way, but it just reminds me a lot of uh, the way Dark Souls and Demon Souls looks, but without those games' weird, ominous, unique touches. Yeah, it's really reminiscent of that as well, honestly. like, the th- <laughs> Of course, those ominous touches are what really sells Demon Souls. Uh, so, I mean, I understand absolutely what you're saying. Uh, it's just kind of it works for me in a, in a certain way because of the, uh, I guess because of the difficulty factor of the game. I don't know. It, it has this, it just seems like if it was real, real colorful, it wouldn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, and I do like uh, like one of the weird touches. This is, again, something that I don't think you would see in another RPG. And when I discovered it, I was like, oh, I love you, game. I love that you do weird things. Uh, there are, are they ogres or trolls? I think they're ogres that you fight. And your pawns will point out that they are especially angry at women. 
Yes. So the, the ogres, <laughs> they get, they have like a weird aggro bonus against female characters. And I don't yep. know what's going on there. And it's a little icky and uncomfortable. But, uh, as someone whose main character is a chick, I was like, wait a minute. This is like, it's weird discrimination. And I'm not sure my imagination, I'm not sure I want to let my imagination run with why the ogres fascinated with a woman, but it's weird and icky. And I love that it makes a gameplay difference. Uh, you know, you can I could not imagine EA doing that in a dragon's age game, for instance. No, yeah, um, no, that's, uh, it's, that was, yeah, that, I thought that was really weird too. I forgot about that, but yeah, when you first go to town or whatever, you, you go to the pawn guild and they have that, they have this exploratory quest and, uh, they have some, I guess, ogres down there. And I, I noticed that too. I was like, wow, that's, Oddly specific. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, Dragon's Dogma, Jason oh, yeah. T. McMaster's Game of the Week. Uh, you right, also, well, mm-hmm. yes. yeah. no, no, yeah, go no, ahead. It just made me think of one other thing I thought was interesting. Uh, when I was doing that fight, uh, one of the ogres, I, I was having a problem with the fight, and um, you're fighting on this narrow ledge, and uh, at one point, the, the, the ogre knocked my pawn off, and I think went diving after it and died when they hit the bottom. <laughs> uh, so I had to go like resurrect my pawn. But that now I think about it, that's happened a few times. I think I lost uh, Harkonis by him falling into water at one point or something. And, uh, yeah, that was funny. McMaster, stay clear of those ledges because they are not OSHA standard. No, no. <laughs> you don't want to go in the water in Dragon's Dogma. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so a little Dragon's Dogma, a little Sins of a Solar Empire, and Witcher 2. Uh, yeah, so Chris, you said it's kind of a, uh, I guess because we are we have talked so much about Diablo 3, uh, it is kind of a downtime for like, like what, what's coming out? What's the next big thing to look forward to? Mm. Do we just have like the long summer? Uh, it depends on what you like, I guess. Like for me, the uh, iPad version of the new Magic the Gathering Planeswalkers uh, is coming out it's on the 20th. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm kind of looking forward to Guild Wars 2, <gasps> which should be oh, out yeah. this summer. Wait, why do, you, why do you say that? Do you know something that I don't know, Chris Hornbossel? About Guild Wars 2? Yes. I uh, just played in the beta weekends, and I've had a, I've enjoyed it. It's a little, there, there's some interesting things that it's doing, and I can't wait to see, you know. Well, uh, I meant, do you know something I don't know about it being out this summer? Uh, I don't, other than there's a lot of guessing out there yeah. in release dates for end of July, early mm-hmm. August, mid So, in oh. other words, Chris Hornbossel, you were just teasing me. Because, good yeah. lord, I wish those guys would announce a release date because I'm so looking at Guild Wars. I I mean, you, you sound like you're trying to be a little guarded, Chris, but I have no such uh, restrictions on my reaction. <laughs> I am so psyched for Guild Wars 2 based yeah. on what I've seen yeah. about it. Don't forget, Quake 4 comes out next week. Jeez. Oh, yeah. What? Okay. What are you talking about? Yeah, the re-release of Quake 4. What? <laughs> you didn't know about that? <laughs> Quake 4 came out, like, in 2009 or something. What are you talking about? Oh, no, it came out long before that. But, yes, it, yeah, they're re-releasing it for some reason. So there's okay. that. I see. I, so, so it's like a summer fill-in. we got to fill in a gap in our release schedule. I guess, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, and uh, Gods and Kings for Civ 5. Or, uh, Civ 5 next I'm kind of looking forward to that. that that's legit. Uh, sure. I uh, hope. I just I know I Tom. Yeah, yeah. New, I don't, po- new Pokemon I, game. 
I would ra- I would almost rather play a new Pokemon game than the. You know what? No, I mean I love strategy games, so I'm curious to see what they're doing. But I just fix so, the AI this time. This time you know what, Chris? It. Now you're really teasing me. It's one. <laughs> it's one thing to tease me with the release date of Guild Wars Two. It's something else entirely to make me think that Civ Five will eventually be a worthwhile gaming experience. How dare you? That's mean. <laughs> uh, um, this time they mean it. <laughs> now wait, wait, real quick though, is that really a bullet point or on the I, God? I have no. I have no idea. I'm playing okay. you now. Okay. <laughs> well played. <laughs> well, yeah, you should pay attention for the last story though at the end of July. That's the the Wii game, the last story. It's a new RPG that has been uh, out in Japan for quite some time that they didn't want to bring to the states. Now, McMaster, in a world before I had played Xenoblade Chronicles, I would laugh at you. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's part of it. Xenoblade's one of those games, and so the last story is uh, also very highly uh, wanted, and uh, so uh, keep uh, keep an eye out. Okay, so good. Uh, all right, so the, I guess there is stuff happening this summer, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Chris, thank you for hanging out with us this week. It's so oh, nice it fun. to have you back. Real quick. Any music tips besides Phantom of the Opera, of course? <laughs> uh, yeah, look for an Australian band called the Bamboos. Bamboos, all right. And, and, and if you do the synth stuff, if you're into electronica a little bit, right? Like o- older school, uh, there is a band from my hometown, uh, which is St. Louis. They're called Cavo Swords, and they're pretty awesome. All right, Bamboos and Cave of Swords. What do you uh, what do you think of the sword? You ever listen to the sword? The sword? Yeah. I, I'm not familiar. Yeah, uh, no, it's, they're, they're like a kind of a like a hard rock metal band kind of thing oh, okay. from Austin. They're pretty awesome. They they uh, do a lot of like uh, story based kind of uh, music. It's interesting. <laughs> McMaster, <laughs> I have no idea what that is. I I. I appreciate your recommendation, McMaster, but I think I'm going to go with Chris's Bamboos and Cave of Swords. I don't know. I'm a little worried about what you might be getting. I'll I'll send you a link. All right. (laughs) Nice. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, We will be back next week with more Games of the Week, more News of the Week. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Jason N. McMaster and Chris Hornbossel. Thanks so much, gentlemen, and we will see everyone here. See, Chris, isn't that awesome, like, keyboarding? Listen to this. That's like on a Casio. You can't do that on any old keyboard. Come on, you know that's awesome, right? Oh, that's spectacular. Now listen, listen to her. Listen to that. Isn't that Sarah Brighton? It's got to be. It's got to be. Man, this is, it's just, like, bad. It's like... Bad. <laughs> That metal band Europe, like that Final Countdown song, converted. <laughs> oh, 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 it's in a for me like that. Oh, yes. it's like the worst excesses of that crossed with like Cape Rock from Yes or something. I don't know. I knew I shouldn't have had you on the podcast, you <laughs> jerk. <laughs> Now listen, here comes the dude. Listen to this. Michael Crawford. That's a good singer. That's right. So there was a movie version of this directed by Joel Schumacher with uh, 
Gerard Butler as the Phantom, and he was horrible as a singer. His voice was so not up to it. It's really sad. Not Gerard Butler. No, how dare you? He would be in Les Miserables, <laughs> by the way. So, is he a worse singer than, uh, what's his name, Oliver Reed in Tommy? Oh, does Oliver Reed have musical numbers in Tommy? Yeah, Oliver it's out. bad. And I'm it's, just imagining that. Wow, yeah. It's legendarily bad. Like, worse than Jack, Jack Nicholson in Tommy. Jack Nicholson is in Tommy? Yeah. Wow, I don't know. Wow, I, I Wait, maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong person. No, you might be right. The, the you Paul might be. Wizard. It's been a while. With the Who, Nicholas Rogue, or is it, yeah, yeah, uh, or no, Ken was, Russell. Uh, Ken, Ken Russell, Russell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, they're both singing now. It's a duet. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that give you chills? Sure. Jack Nicholson is in. Oh yeah, he is. It's specialist, yeah. Yeah, he ruins one of my favorite songs of that record. Which song? It's been a while. Uh, the goat, the goat of the mirrors song. Oh yes. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Uh, can you feel me near you? <laughs> guys, quit talking over the, the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> That's just rude.